did I not see this coming? Hello and welcome back to another episode of the Year of Polygamy podcast. I'm your host, Lindsay, and I'm really excited today because we have been talking about the temple. If you are tuning in now for the first time, we just did a two-part series on the history of the development of the temple and then sort of went into the LDS viewpoint of the temple and the temple changes. Because this podcast is trying to incorporate all of Mormonism, we don't want to just focus on the LDS aspect of the temple. Now, again, if you're just tuning in, you might say, what do you mean Mormon and LDS are the same thing? But they're really not. Uh, as we have talked in length about in this podcast, Mormonism is broader and bigger than just the LDS church. There are over 487 extant expressions in Mormonism. And so we're going to talk to some folks who are part of one of those expressions tonight. And we're going to talk about the history of the temple as it relates to fundamentalism. And then we're going to hopefully uh, dive into some specifics on the particular uh, group that these good folks belong to. Um, so let me introduce a guest and then we'll, then we'll sort of get into it. But first, let's say hi to Anne Hatch. Anne, can you say hello? Hi, everyone. So Anne, this is your first time coming on the podcast. And you are surprisingly not as nervous as some guests for the first time. So uh, that's great. Can you tell us a little bit about yourself? Yeah, um, I work as an office manager for my company. Um, I graduated college from Boise State University with a degree in information technology. I was raised in the LDS church and I started looking into the changes that were going on in the LDS church in the 1990s. I stopped attending that church in the early 2000s and uh, my husband and I joined our current church, which is Christ Church or otherwise known as the branch. And I've served in various callings in our new church. I've been a new member missionary, a file leader with my husband. Also, I've taught in Relief Society, and I've been the temple matron for our church since 2013. That's amazing. So I, I actually want to kind of ask you more about that, especially your role as it relates to the temple. So when you're when you're talking about it, it's so interesting because you're talking about uh, being in Relief Society and a temple matron, and to LDS people, that sounds very LDS, which sort of drives home the point that just how closely related our Mormon uh, sects are. And so we're going to get into that. And also tonight, I have Benjamin Schaefer. Ben, is this your first time on the podcast? I swear we've had you before. Uh, this is not my first time on the podcast. I want to say it's in the 130s somewhere, the episode about... I talk a little bit about my history, the history of fundamentalism, and how it is that I, I came to embrace the Christ church and converted. And so, yes, Anne and I are in the same religion. My background is I'm a Mormon historian. I've done a little bit of uh, writing about that. And I'm also an attorney working Spanish fork. And I'm sure we'll link, we'll link the other podcast that I'm into this one. And if I can just say something about Benjamin. So uh, he comes to different scholarly events. He comes to Sunstone. He comes to other Mormon events. And I think he's a really good ambassador for his church. He's very open in, to talking about it. So if if ever you're listening out there and you have questions about fundamentalism, Ben is a really approachable person to talk to. So, And uh, I want to say that you're also a Mason. I hope you're okay that I revealed Well, thank that. you. Yeah. And we're going to be doing a Masonry walk tour in March in Salt Lake City, a tour of the temple with Benjamin Schaefer and uh, Sunstone podcast host, John Larson. So if you guys want that, you can go to sunstone.org for more information. We're going to have, that's going to be really fun. 
because you're also a Mason. The, the history of Mormonism and the history of Masonry are are linked in a lot of very interesting ways. So, and I even have some of the documents, uh, well, copies of some of the documents signed by Joseph Smith and things like that with the Nauvoo Lodge. So that'll be a very interesting presentation when we do it. Well, I really appreciate you both coming on here and taking time out of this tonight. So I want to sort of set this up because uh, I've talked about this before, but it is pretty unusual for, or at least it used to be unusual for anyone except the LDS to have a temple. And Community of Christ has had a temple for a while now. They come out of the Restoration. The LDS have had a temple. But for the most part, most of the Brighamite branches relied on the LDS temples as part of their temple. And that has been changing, and that's continuing to change. And so do you guys want to walk us into sort of why that's been a thing? Ben? Yeah. Actually, if you look at the history of it, there have been actually only nine out of the more than 200 different LDS sects and groups. There have only been nine that have actually built temples or incorporate active temple practices in their theology. So um, the Brighamites, essentially, they were the, the largest, of course, originally. The first temple that's claimed by everyone, of course, is the Kirtland Temple. But after that, you have the Pioneer Utah temples, and then others throughout the 19th and then the 20th century. It wasn't until 1978 when Christchurch was organized, ours was the first to build a temple outside that tradition. Then um, in quick succession in the 80s, um, you have the AUB built a temple. There's one in Mexico as well as one in Utah that they have. The Community of Christ, they built their temple in Independence, Missouri. Not, not, not technically speaking, a Mormon fundamentalist group, right? A different LDS group, but not fundamentalist. The the Cutlerites, they had temple meeting houses where they kept a temple tradition going throughout the 19th and 20th century as well. And then you have the Nielsen Naylor gathering. They're building a temple now. And the FLDS built a temple in Texas. So yeah, it seems that several, I, I guess as things have separated, there have been more traditions trying to do that. Okay. And I just want to talk about this for just a minute because you said 1978 is when your church uh, built a temple. And what I'm about to say doesn't, from my understanding, doesn't apply to your church. It just happened to be in the same year. But I've talked about this before. I think we talked about this on the last podcast. My understanding is that for a long time, Many fundamentalists would say a rote prayer as they face the church like Mecca or the temple like Mecca, and they would teach their kids to say a prayer about opening the door, that the doors will one day be open to them and the the Lord will set his house in order. And then in 1978, when the LDS church allowed black people to enter the temple, many saw that as like a desecration of the temple. So your group started a temple that year for a different reason. Is that correct? That is basically correct. In 1978, April 6th, was when Christchurch was organized, and that was before Official Declaration Two. However, there were there, and there was one other really important change that year is that that was when they really completed the shift away from using the original temple garments um, in the mainstream LDS temples. And throughout the 80s, and then in 1990, there were really major revisions of the endowment ceremonies and things like that. And so we believe that we were not being reactive, but we were being proactive, that the Lord inspired uh, those changes to take place for us to build that temple before any desecrations could take place. Now, I understand that a lot of Mormon fundamentalists will point to 
blacks in the temple as a desecration, which is very upsetting. I understand it sounds, it's very, very racist, but that wasn't the reason why we first started building our temple. It may be one of the reasons for some of the other groups. Yeah. So I just wanted to add that distinction because the year that you said is going to perk up the ears for people that have, that have paid attention to that. And one that I think that you missed is this, the remnant movement, the snuffer followers. Uh, it's said that they're crowdfunding for a temple too. I, don't, I haven't followed up to see where they're at in that process, but I do believe that's happening. Yeah, I've, I've actually heard about that too. It'll be really interesting to see what they come up with and what they build. Okay, so uh, let's get into the history. And do you want to do you want to talk anything about fundamentalists and the temple before we go to the dive into the history? It's really interesting because when I joined the branch, I had been to the temple in the LDS Church, of course, but I hadn't been like you know actively going a lot. I'd go a few times a year, and there were some changes that. I didn't realize had occurred because I didn't go through the LDS temple until 1991. And so already several changes had happened. And it was in talking with some of my aunts about those temple changes. And mostly their biggest concern was the changes to the garment. And I remember growing up and out on the, the backyard, we had a big clothesline. And I remember seeing my grandparents' garments or underwear, we call them undies hanging up out there. And they were the temple garments that I wear today. And I am I thought it was weird that I wasn't getting those when I was going through the temple in 91. And that's kind of what started my quest on researching the changes in the church and looking into them and seeing why they were happening. And after I talked to several of you know, my aunts, and they said that they still wear the one pieces, even though they're shorter. And they encouraged me to do the same thing and not to get the two-piece shorter garment. And when I came to the, the branch, they explained that, you know, we had to have three pair of these long underwear garments that, you know, in order for us to be able to go to the temple. And it wasn't, you know, you have to wait a year like you do in the LDS church when you join. Um, it was, you know, you need to have a couple discussions with your file leader and get your garments ready and then we can go through the temple. And I learned about a lot of those changes and I really reflected on my aunts and I think that they helped prepare me when I first went through the LDS church for my experiences going through the branch temple um, when I joined here. Thank you. That's, I think that's a really important perspective because I think sometimes people, like we talk about this in the abstract about people that noticed the, the changes and then converted. And you're actually one of them. You're one of those that went through that process. Kind of a big deal. Yep. Okay. So uh, how do we want to start? Where do we want to dive into the history? I think it'd be interesting to discuss what the changes are. Essentially, what was the original content of the endowment and what is the content now to compare the two? Um, we have about five hours of endowment in the early endowments and only about an hour now. So that's about four hours of content to discuss that's changed drastically. Yeah, so why don't we get into that? I mean, the LDS is talking a lot about two-hour church. This is the year we moved to our church, so everyone is really <laughs> excited to like downsize the time, but there are people that really appreciate the long form. So yeah, why don't you bring us into that? Well, I think that the first and I think most shocking fact is that the, the earliest endowments were so much longer. Uh, in the red brick store where they did the first endowments, they described that that took seven, eight, or nine hours. Now, 
Joseph Smith is also quoted by Brigham Young as having said at the time that the it wasn't fully systematized and that Brigham Young should continue to formalize it. But even when in 1877, Brigham Young made the first written records of the endowment, it still took about five hours to perform, five or six hours, depending on how quickly they got through it. And that was the very first time it was written down. So anything before 1877, there is no written record. It's fairly speculative as to exactly what the content difference there there might have been in Nauvoo versus in 1877 in the St. George Temple. That's when it was dedicated and that's when they first wrote it down. So we're talking about a, a lot of a lot of content difference and also a lot of difference in essentially what I think the theological underpinnings were and what kinds of doctrines were taught in it, like polygamy, Adam God, consecration, the United Order, and other things like that that were originally more included in the endowment. Okay, so let's get into that because one of the one of the questions that we sort of approached, but we never really answered on the last episode with historian Devery Anderson, was this idea that the endowment is tied to polygamy, which, you know, I've read the information and I really see the threads of polygamy. I'm, I'm one that believes that the temple endowment is closely related, if not prompted by the practice. So uh, can we tackle that topic first? Okay. Well, you know, I think that polygamy does have a role in the temple and the creation of the endowment and how it progressed. And if you think about it, you know, in Brigham Young's time, like Benjamin was saying in the 1870s, you know, when they first started writing it down, he did that to kind of make sure that everything was kind of similar in all of the temples that were going on there and that each person could, you know, get those and they get the same endowment and have the same, you know, information taught to them. And I think that, you know, at the time also, a lot of symbolism was being introduced to the church. And I think that by the 1920s, a lot of that got lost when they made a bunch of changes when Grant took over. And I think it's important to note, you know, like in, in Brother Anderson's book that he wrote, he, he points out that a lot of those changes came about not by the first presidency of the church, but by others who brought questions to them. And as polygamy was being phased out, I think a lot of the things that had to do with the undertone of polygamy were some of those things that were phased out. As far as polygamy being related to the endowment early on, I think that there's an important point that polygamy was a secretive practice at first, right? They were very cautious as to who they talked to about it. And placing people under covenant to each other and covenants of secrecy in the temple to some extent, became a preparation for deeper doctrine teachings. Now, I don't know that I I think that it goes straight to polygamy first. I think first it relates to things like Adam-God teachings. Um, The King Follett Discourse, for example, by Joseph Smith, talks a lot about the personhood, the humanness, essentially, of God and how we are also gods. Those types of doctrines are um, generally what we consider the meat um, it, it's difficult to to start there for a lot of people. And Joseph wait, wait, wait. Smith, can even I, in the King Fol- Can I ask a question really quick? Uh-huh. So my understanding was that Adam God was really developed by Brigham Young, but are you arguing that it really originates with Joseph Smith? Yeah, I'm, I am arguing that it originates with Joseph Smith. And I would say that uh, a lot of the teachings, like the King Follett Discourse, essentially are Adam God teachings. 
and that the purpose of this of the endowment originally was to teach these deeper doctrines. And so I think polygamy becomes a, becomes an outgrowth of that. But um, the narrative about Adam and Eve in the endowment, I believe, was essentially a way of giving a symbolic explanation of the Adam God doctrine to those who went through that original endowment. And do you want to give us like a quick and dirty explanation of what Adam God is for people who don't know? Sure. What Adam God doctrine is, is that we believe that Adam was once living on a planet similar to ours and had a mortal existence like us. And when he passed beyond the veil, he was able to progress in um, the heavenly kingdom and to grow with his family, which I believe include multiple wives. Adam, I believe, was a polygamist. And at that point, they raised spirit children and they taught them. And that was our pre-existence. And then they had an opportunity to come here and to give their spirit children bodies and an opportunity for mortal existence. And that Adam was Michael, the archangel, as many of us have been taught, um, LDS church or otherwise, and that he came here with um, his wives and they gave physical bodies to their children. And that he basically, as I believe Joseph Smith taught and Brigham Young expounded upon, as well as a few others, basically he is our father in heaven. He is the creator of our souls, of our spirit, and that he is, you know, the one that we call Heavenly Father. I. As you're talking, I'm like, we really need to just do an episode on Adam God, the doctrine, because it's so fascinating. And I, I actually think that a lot of those doctrines still exist, even though they've been removed from the LDS ceremony largely, but there are still like traces of it. So maybe I can have you guys come back and we can do that sometime. But, but Absolutely. Ben, ben, do you want to talk about how Adam God shows up in the endowment? And you know what? I forgot to start with like a disclaimer. What are your guys' limits on sacred things? I, I know the LDS take an oath and I know you have a similar oath not to reveal things, but I want to know what your threshold is so I'm not crossing a line. Well, I'll let you know if you cross the line as far as I'm concerned. And and then we'll just see where we where, where it takes us. I, we do believe that the temple is very, very sacred. We do speak of it with reverence, but I do think it's also essential that people have the opportunity to learn a few things about what these teachings are so that, you know, if they come someday into the temple with us, that it's not entirely foreign, that they have a foundation to build on. Perfect. Thank you. Um. So, yeah. So if you are comfortable, if you both want to jump in on how Adam God shows up in the early ceremony and and then we can I mean, we're going to talk about your group later, but let's talk about what the early Mormon saints, how they would have understood this doctrine in relation to the temple. Well, all I was all I was going to say was, Lindsay, you know, I I grew up, you know, in in the LDS church and my mother's father was very much a man who delved into the mysteries. And I remember sitting around and listening to my mom tell us stories about the things that he had shared with his knowledge. And he said that going to the temple taught us how our families are supposed to be. And he had married a woman in, I believe it was in 1918, and they had a child in 1919. And, and the, the mother and the child both passed away due to complications from childbirth. And later he was building the Cardston Temple and he was down um, in the trench, you know, helping to, to build the foundation of this temple. And my grandmother came up with her, some of her family members and they had brought the brethren and who were eating in some food. 
for their, their meal. And he said he looked up and he saw an angel and he knew that he was one of her angels. And later when they had an opportunity to go through the Cardston Temple and be sealed, and this was sometime after they were married because they got married sooner than the temple was finished, he, he said that the temple taught him how a family was supposed to be and how his family with both of his wives would re-interact in the heavens. And so I think it was very clear to my grandfather, who went through the Cardston Temple in the 19, late 1920s when it opened, that Adam's God doctrine had a role to do with our families and how we are supposed to relate to one another. That's beautiful. Thank you. As far as the earliest endowments um, and my understanding of their content, uh, one of the places to turn actually is the book of Moses and the Pearl of Great Price, that uh, chapters three, four, and five at least were read during that first endowment in Nauvoo. Now, how does that relate to the Adam-God doctrine? Well, the book of Moses talks a lot about how Moses recognized that from that vision that he was a, a descendant or a son of God. We believe that that's essentially an Adam-God teaching. It's this idea that God isn't just our spiritual parent, Heavenly Father and Heavenly Mother aren't simply our spiritual parents in a pre-existence kind of way but that we are their literal descendants, that we're literally a family. Now, to further illustrate that point, we have this idea that Adam is Michael, and Michael is the archangel, or the head above all angels, right? Even more explicitly in the Doctrine and Covenants in section 27, as far back as Kirtland, it states that Adam is Michael and is the Ancient of Days. Now, in every religious tradition that uses the Bible, Jewish, Christian of all kinds, Every scholar has always identified the Ancient of Days, as spoken of in Daniel, as God, the Father and Creator of the world. And then, and I believe that the people at the time would have never heard any other explanation for what this title could have possibly have meant. So they go into this symbolic ceremony of the endowment where they are taught that Michael is the Ancient of Days, that he created the earth, as we all know God created the earth, and that then he did not simply turn it over to someone else or form a man out of clay, but that he himself came down, brought his wives with him, and became our progenitor, became our ancestor. And I believe that this is a really, really important doctrine, and that Joseph Smith wanted this to be an important part of the instruction of the endowment. Um, not just the covenants, right, but the instructional portion, because I believe that the early leaders of the church felt that if we did not have that as the basis, we would not understand the other doctrines. Okay, so um, I actually agree with your interpretation of the doctrine and everything. The only thing that I think that you might get pushed back on is relating it to Joseph Smith. So do you want to do you want to give some sort of citation or further reading for people of wh how, why you believe that this doctrine is tied to Joseph Smith and not just Brigham Young? Well, the first one, of course, is the King Fuller Discourse. Everyone's heard of that one, where he does talk a lot about God being an ancestor, God being a man. Beyond that, however, we've got the, with the Joseph Smith Papers Project, we're getting some additional references, and I may be able to find it to put on the web, but I do not have it in front of me, in the Council of 50 Minutes. In the Council of 50 Minutes, there are some notes about Joseph Smith giving discourses about Adam being God um, to the Council of 50, which I, I think is rather interesting. Beyond that, I think the biggest problem is the way it's compartmentalized. Some people will say that, or for example, from our point of view, the Adam-God doctrine relates to all the doctrines 
all of the concepts of the fatherhood of God, at least insofar as the idea that God is our physical father as well as our spiritual father. To us, all of those would be Adam-God teachings because Adam, as we know, is the first man. So some people will read, say, Luke chapter 3, where it gives Jesus' genealogy. And in there, in, in the New Testament, it says, Adam was the son of God. To us, that's an Adam-God teaching. It's a, it's a direct and open scripture that any Christian should be able to read and see, oh, well, that's an Adam-God teaching. Other people want to compartmentalize this into a much smaller category, saying that it's not an Adam-God teaching unless they're specifically saying that the Adam of the Garden of Eden is God the Father in the most explicit manner. They'll, they'll just simply not include any of those other quotes. Now, again, I can include hundreds of quotes that I think teach the doctrine from Joseph Smith. I can probably only point to a couple where I believe he was being fairly explicit about Adam being God. Which is, first of all, I just messaged you. I, I think you should do this as a Sunstone presentation, King Fola and, and Adam God. And I also think that it's more documentary evidence than we have on the endowment from Joseph Smith in general, because we actually don't have a lot of documentary history from the Joseph Smith era. And even like the frontier era, it's kind of scanned. But yeah, so sorry to make you do that. I just know some people are going to be like, no, 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 this is all Brigham Young. Well, and it is a hard question because the endowment was entirely an oral tradition until 1877. And it was written down by Brigham Young, who included several very explicit Adam God references in the script of the endowment itself. Now, I, I recognize a lot of people will say, well, Brigham Young and Joseph Smith, they don't see them in the same camp. Well, since we are Brighamites, more or less, we do see them as in agreement. So, Yeah, and that's another important thing that within the Restoration, it's so hard to talk about fundamentalism in general because fundamentalists don't even agree on some of this stuff. I mean, I think Adam God, you could say, is pretty standard for a lot of Brighamite traditions. But, I mean, as we talked about the, the remnant movement or... Uh, some others think that, you know, Brigham Young, like everything after Brigham Young, we don't take seriously. And Brigham Young, in my mind, took this doctrine and these threads of this doctrine to its logical conclusion with um, sort of a more over Adam God doctrine. But why don't we get into the changes in the temple? Do you guys want to go over some of the significant changes over time? And I kind of want you to weigh in on as since you're both faithful members, how you see them, uh, if you see them as a positive thing or a negative thing. Does that make sense? Okay. So I think the first change, like I noticed, was the temple garment, because that's what was pointed out to me by my aunts when I went through the LDS church. And it's something visual that I saw with my grandparents' garments growing up in the backyard, them hanging out to dry. They were the long original temple garments. They had a collar, they had strings, they had marks that were open. They made them themselves. They didn't go to distribution and buy them. And I I heard a lot of talk with inside my family over the years about those garments and how sacred that they were and what they represented. And I know that a lot of people believe that those garments represent more of a polygamous type of viewpoint. But, you know, I I think that they actually represent a viewpoint that is very Mormon. And um, I believe that those garments were worn by Joseph Smith. In fact, you know, we know that Emma gave two pair of garments to Mary Fielding Smith when she was leaving Nauvoo. And those were their original ones. Um, and I think that over the years, the change of the temple garments going from, you know, down to the ankles and down to the wrists and 
and, you know, worn up high modestly, even, even though they're open. My, my daughter's still like, I don't know how these are any more modest, mom. They're open everywhere in the front, but, um, they are more of a modest thing and, you know, very, very Victorian kind of in a way as well, you know, cause you dress that modestly. And as new fashions came out, a lot of the women wanted to wear them, but they couldn't with the garment and it posed a little bit of a problem. And women went and asked questions about it. And I believe that that's where the first change was with the garment anyway, was, you know, to keep up with popular dress and stuff. And I think that, that we've seen that through history and, and that it's popular. I think other changes, um, you know, I don't know if I just, maybe I should just list them and you can decide what you want to talk about more so. But other changes I've seen are with the uh, initiatory work, as the LDS Church calls them. We just call them washings and anointings, where, um, you know, now it's more, and, and correct me if I'm wrong, because I haven't been to the LDS Church since the year 2002, I think, um, in the LDS Temple. I went one more time before I decided to leave, <laughs> just to see. And the way that they did the initiatory work was different than when I even went through 10 years before. And now I've heard that there's even more changes. And the way that our church does the initiatory is, you know, very similar to the way it was done in the early, in the beginning. We have a shield. Um, we are not wearing clothing underneath it. We get our bodies washed and anointed and we have our garments placed on ourselves. But you use cinnamon whiskey, right? Tell me you use cinnamon whiskey. <laughs> No, but I want to actually. I want to. I want to go to whatever <laughs> church uses cinnamon whiskey to bathe in. That sounds great. <laughs> no, when I heard you guys talk about that, I was like, that is so cool. Mid and I talked about that a little bit last month, and I was like, you know what? That'd be kind of very interesting. But um, no, we don't. I feel use like if we whiskey, did that sorry. in this day and age, everyone would just think we're an alcoholic. We just leave smelling like alcohol. <laughs> so <laughs> probably, probably, but um, yeah, or or a good cinnamon roll. Maybe. I don't know. Food related. So um, anyway, so we we go back to doing those in kind of the original way. I mean, we're not in the bathtub original where they're scrubbing somebody down, but but we have the shield and we go from booth to booth to booth. And so, you know, I think that's a big change in the LDS stuff. Um, another change that happened, you know, that started happening in the 1920s was when the members of the church would go through they wore their temple robe and then they switched it over to the one shoulder and then they switched it back. And, you know, in the 1920s, they got rid of that first one. So then they didn't go in wearing the robe and then they put it on and then they'd switch it. And, um, and then, you know, now it's, I've heard that they've taken away that first temple robe putting on, they only wear it for the Melchizedek priesthood part. And that's a little concerning to me because I'm like, okay, I mean, I, I can kind of, I guess I can understand the one in 1920 and, you know, we kind of follow that same thing in our church, but um, I don't understand the removing of it completely from the ironic priesthood point of view. And I just wanted to point that out, that that was one of the changes. You know, another change is, you know, some of, you know, like you guys mentioned, I believe on the podcast this last time with um, Davra and Christina, and I can't remember the other woman's name. I'm sorry. Um, Cynthia. Cynthia, thank you. Um, you guys were talking a little bit about some of the other changes there and, you know, with the veil and, you know, some other things. And we, we still use the veil. I personally don't have 
a problem at all with veiling. Um, other than, yeah, maybe sometimes I couldn't quite breathe underneath there, but I learned how to just kind of deal with it. But I never really looked at it in the point of view that some of the other women did. And it kind of, you know, made me think about, you know, their perspective a little bit. And I was kind of open to it. But I really enjoy um, the veil. And I think that it brings more power behind our prayers. And we actually use the veil in some of our other outside the temple, in, in our other meetings and in our homes um, at prayer time as well. And so the veil is a big part of that for me and it's it's symbolic for me and I treat it with reverence and I use it for a purpose. Um, Some other changes that I've seen, you know, are that in the temple back in Brigham Young's time, you know, women would, you know, participate more. They would, you know, give blessings and they would, um, you know, help with the anointings and things as well in there. And we would see more blessings for healing and, and a lot of miracles in those regards. And we don't see that, you know, as much going on these days. Um, Benjamin, do you want to jump in with any others? Um, yeah, I mean, I think that one of the things that I want to bring up is just how big of a difference there is between the idea of temple changes versus clarifications. Um so what's the difference? I, I think that a change makes it, it different. It's usually taking away a doctrine. Um, it's, and I understand that the motive is usually to streamline or to, or to accommodate different people's attitudes or feelings or concerns, right? I, I mean, I sympathize with women who didn't understand the veiling symbolism or, and, and therefore thought that it was suppressive or uncomfortable primarily instead of seeing I mean, the beauty and the history of this symbol goes back thousands of years uh, in almost all religions. You've got, uh, and this is why brides were veiled, still are generally in a lot of cases, though they don't always put it over their face, um, things like that. But then there can be clarifications. So I guess I would draw that distinction. So, for example, I I believe that what Brigham Young was doing in 1877 was bringing about a clarification. He was streamlining the endowment services and standardizing them so that everybody could have access to the same concepts. Whereas the changes since 1978, removing the garment, uh, now removing the veil and the way the robes are used, and some people are looking forward to additional changes, perhaps the elimination of the apron or the head coverings altogether or the robe or and maybe not having any ceremonial clothing. Should those things happen, I see that as a terrible loss because it's subtracting something. Now, clarification is the opposite. It's adding something that helps the symbols become more comprehensible. Clarification can enhance true principles instead of changing those principles. So it could be as simple as having, like temple classes, for example, explaining the symbolism to the members so that they can gain a deeper understanding. And and so for me, that's really the biggest change that, that occurred and that we still do differently in Christ Church is that we have temple classes. We have like a school of the prophets type um, opportunities. When people go to the endowment sessions, we often break into instructional periods that are unique so that we can discuss all of the symbolism and gain a deeper understanding of it. And since it's not discussed in the LDS Church anymore, in a lot of cases, people simply don't know what they mean and therefore don't appreciate them. Well, and we kind of talked about that in the other episode, which was this idea that 
there's something problematic if you can't talk about things that are like actually really important. And so I appreciate that. I actually think fundamentalists in general, not just your group, although your group is definitely on the one end of the spectrum. They're a lot more flexible of talking about things. And your group is surprisingly open, which is really refreshing as an LDS person. Well, you know, one thing that I found, because I went through the LDS Temple Preparedness classes, and I found that I don't think that they prepared me really for the experience and for the things I would be learning. And it took me quite a while to get there. But I was, you know, told, you know, when you come to the temple, be prepared to learn something new every time. Come with the right spirit so that you can do those things. And my husband was told that when he went through the LDS Church Temple, you know, earlier than 1990. And so, you know, when you... You, you're taught those things and you're taught that there should be more there. But when you go, it's the same thing over and over. It's very rote. And you know that there's meaning behind those things, but um, you don't understand it. And I don't think that their temple preparedness classes did that. And when, when Dan and I were called to be the temple president and matron for our church, we sat down after we, we, we did probably about a year's worth of stuff. Um, sessions and things. And we had some new members going through for the first time. And we realized that we needed to have some sort of prep- preparation class for them because they had a lot of questions. And so we wrote up our own manual and we came up with these things and we talked to them about our garments and what they mean and what the symbolism is. We have a whole class just on symbolism where we take them into certain parts of our temple that we can show them some symbolism that we have in our temples and we can explain what those things mean. And we have quotes from, you know, our founding prophet, Brother Gerald Sr. And, you know, we explain his viewpoint and his take on the symbols and what they really mean for us in our lives and how they relate to our eternal salvation. And, you know, then we start getting more questions about different types of things. And so we talk about covenants and we talk about washings and anointings. And and we really interviewed some of those the people that went through the first year that we were in charge of the temple for the first time and asked them, you know, what was surprising to you? What what would you have liked to see um, more on before you had the experience? And so we've kind of adapted that so that we could encourage them um with knowledge and empower them to be able to go so that they could feel and learn those things. And we even have an opening exercise and we have sometimes, you know, a little five minute little talk before we go in about different things that have to do with the temple and explain, you know, why we're there and what the purpose is. And, you know, we take time to answer questions as we go through. And I remember going to the LDS church in 90 or the LDS temple, excuse me, in 91. Um, it was late in the year and I, I left there and we were still sitting. We were in the women's area in, in what I believe they called the bride's room. And um, my best friend and her mom and my mom and my aunt and, and I believe her cousin was there. And they're like, okay, do you have any questions? And I'm like, yeah, I had a bunch of questions in the room. Can I ask you some of those questions here? Oh, no, we have to be in the room. But there's nowhere in the room to have those discussions. And when I came to the branch and we went through the temple the first time, they stopped after a period and they said, do you have any questions? And they asked anybody, not just the new people going through, but anyone, if they had questions. And there was this huge discussion. And I remember I remember yawning and thinking, I'm going to fall asleep and not make it through this session. Because we started at like noon, and the temple session didn't end until like 8.30 or 9 o'clock at night. And 
it was very enlightening and educational. And that's one thing that we've tried to do here is say, you know what, this church is very much an educational institution for us to come and learn things of a higher nature, because we want it to be like it was in Kirtland when Joseph Smith went in and taught, and we want it to be like in Nauvoo, and we want it, you know, to have these wonderful experiences with our members so that it would tie them to the temple. But, you know, I, I want to bring up one thing that is, to me, the most important part of the temple, and that is tying families together. And I've seen a lot of, a lot of comments out on the web you know, on Reddit and I've, I've listened to, you know, previous podcasts and I've, I've read things, you know, on Facebook where people are discussing these things. And a lot of people are very confused because they think, you know, if my ancestors went through back then, and now if I took a name through, would it mean the same thing to both people? And I really don't think that it will. And I can understand why they are confused by that. And I think that we need to understand, at least from my perspective, I feel like I need to understand that the temple to me has a deeper meaning of family relationships. And like my grandfather said, it teaches us how to be a family. We're doing a service for someone who cannot serve themselves. And we're doing a genealogy of, of work, you know, work in genealogy to help, you know, tie us back together, to, to weld us together for generations. Um, so that we can, you know, move forward in the next life together and work together. And I think that there's a decline in understanding on that point of view when we keep making different changes and we don't understand what it is to, you know, become like God and to commune with him and to understand his ways and that we lose some of that because we don't get the education up front before we go into a session. And that's why I think we've really focused on doing some temple preparedness type classes before we have someone we go through. I actually really like that because we talked about this in the other episode, but you're so right. You know, you're supposed to be able to talk about these things and, you know, in the LDS temples, you go through the session and then you end up in the celestial room, which is a beautiful room. It's one of the most beautiful rooms in the temple where you're supposed to talk and reflect and think on spiritual things. Well, I felt the same way. I was like, but I can't talk here. It's too quiet. It felt like a library. Like people would shush you right. <laughs> and started talking. Exactly. So I was like, what am I supposed to do? So really, I do think the majority of the conversations happen in the temple lobby and in the locker rooms, right? Because there's not, a, I mean, at least in my experience, I, I've never really seen anyone like have a really robust conversation in the celestial room, although that would be awesome. I, I've always wanted to be able to do that. But I think in our celestial room, we have. In fact, sometimes after a session, you know, we will call people in and have them sit down and we we talk about things. There's been ceilings and blessings given in the celestial room. There's there's been some beautiful conversations about deeper doctrine that we prefer to talk to in, you know, our temple, and it provides that ability to do so. And while we want to be reverent, our celestial room, while we, I believe that it's, it's very beautiful, it's also smaller. And so we're a little bit closer together. So we can talk in smaller, quieter voices and still have really good conversations. And I, I feel that a lot of that is missed in these big, beautiful celestial rooms that I, I do love in the LDS church, but you, I do feel like I was hushed, like a librarian was coming around and telling us to be quiet. You know, the other thing I kind of want to point out is that as people lose the opportunity 
to learn about the deeper meanings, a lot of the culture gets lost. Um, it's a lot like um, if you think about the way in which Native American cultures have struggled, um, considering they've been suppressed for so long, how to preserve their traditions. Well, these traditions are the Mormon traditions, right? And if we get stripped of these ancestral traditions and the understanding that Mormons would have had, I mean, really only 40 years ago or 100 years ago, we lose our understanding of why our ancestors did the things they did, and we lose some of that identity. And I think that's quite sad. But yeah. I think it also speaks to another big issue as to why exactly does the church make these changes? Yeah, so let's dive uh, into that um, since we're talking about the changes. And, and then I want to talk about larger fundamentalist understandings because, for example, Warren Jeffs, when he built the temple in Texas, I, I've been like pouring over whatever documentation we have and the rituals that he's coming up with are completely different than what most fundamentalists believe. And so I want to talk about that because it's so interesting that you can see common threads in most of it, but my understanding of the FLDS temple specifically is pretty different. And also the TLC, True and Living Church in Manti, their endowment was quite different as well. That's right. In fact, a whole bunch of these different traditions really kind of branch out into the things that they find most interesting, it seems. So there's actually groups that were more Gnostic in nature. Uh, the Godbeites, for example, they don't really exist anymore, but they were very spiritualist in nature. So a lot of what they wanted to do more resembled a seance than anything that than most Mormons re would um, recognize as an endowment. And of course, I'm quite frightened by some of the things that I've heard out of the FLDS temple. Um, because some of it is just absolutely heinous. But it, I, I guess the idea, though, if you go back to the very beginning of Mormonism, even in just the idea that an endowment would be poured out upon the heads of those who helped build the Kirtland Temple, without any definition of that being any specific ritual, all Mormons of all these branches, I think, have deeply woven into our tradition that it means something. Now, exactly what it means, exactly how we express it in some of those different branches of Mormonism, they'll look at it very differently. I mean, the Community of Christ Temple, for example, in Independence, they view that as a place for the outpouring of the Spirit, but they don't do any particular um, ceremonies the way that the endowments would be in a Brighamite sense. Yeah, so let, let me just give you an example of one. So their temple is open to the public. You can tour it, and then they have like a peace walk, and I... I I hope that I'm not botching this, but they have a peace walk and they have a prayer for peace, I believe, every morning at the same time. And they say this rote prayer for different nations around the world. And they try to pick different ones each time and have a, a prayer for peace. And then you can do the peace walk that loops you into the sacred divine geometry. And I've often heard LDS people talk kind of smugly about that, that the fact that, you know, we let people, they let anyone in is a sign that it's isn't a real temple. But again, if you look at the Kirtland Temple, there's not really anything in modern Mormon groups that I'm aware of at all that really reflects the Kirtland Temple practices. And actually, in some ways, um, what they're doing in independence there at the Community of Christ is really a beautiful continuation of a lot of those same traditions. The sacred geometry is something that plays into all of these temple traditions. It's something that also in Christchurch we continue to talk about and um, put into the design of our temples is is the those sacred geometry shapes, the idea that the prayers 
for peace. Now, I, I know some people will probably take issue with this characterization, but uh, one of the early uh, contents of the endowment that uh, was taken out as far back as the 1920s that we continue to do in Christ's church um, is something called the Oath of Vengeance. Um, now, I know that that sounds terrible and frightening to a lot of people, but the oath itself is a promise to pray. It's a prayer that the Lord's justice will be poured out, that the Lord will be able to bring about the world of peace that he's promised in the millennial reign. And so to some extent, their prayer for peace, I see as a natural outgrowth of that same tradition that we simply call the oath of vengeance. And now I know some people will say that sounds like the opposite ends of the spectrum, but when you get down to what the content actually is, which is the pr- a constant prayer in the temple and a covenant that we will constantly pray in the temple for God to bring about his peace on the earth, essentially the content begins to look almost identical. And I'm going to add something to that, if I may. On the oath of vengeance, I know you guys were talking about this a little bit last episode, or maybe it was the previous one, but you know, it says in there that we will teach our children's children to the third and fourth generation. And one of the things that I think is beautiful about that, as Benjamin pointed out, yes, it starts in the temple and we are asking for prayers of peace, but we come home and we teach our children to pray for peace. And we teach our children to pray for others who have been wrong and to help right them. And we don't just stop at the third or fourth generation because when I get to my great grandkids and I'm teaching them, I expect them to teach their great great grandchildren as well. So this is something that is continuing on and on and on that we keep using for peace for the whole entire world for all of God's family and all of his children to work together. I really appreciate you guys tying that in because yeah, I think that this just shows that the that the interpretations in the restoration, there's a lot to uh draw from there's a huge rich tradition of the temple and in my opinion the community of christ for example is one of those i i actually really enjoy their interpretation of the temple i think it's really beautiful and so if i if i put them on one spectrum in my mind and then you have like warren jeffs who took advantage of secrecy to do really pernicious things like i'm just gonna we won't go into it in great detail but like group orgies basically uh it's so interesting to see how the temple can be interpreted and used and understood and misunderstood. I think it may come from the fact that symbolism is a powerful thing. If you go into like Jungian psychology, for example, uh, the idea that the subconscious and the collective subconscious are influenced by and interpreted by symbol symbols, right? And there's symbolic logic essentially that goes on in our own neurology. That's how we think about things. Essentially, that means that it's a very powerful tool or a very powerful weapon, depending on how you use it, to really get under the skin. It really gets into your mind. Now, I believe that can be used for good, but those other examples can be examples of how it can be used for some pretty heinous evil because essentially, I mean, I, I don't know, brainwashing sounds too, too cliche, but it's it's the type of education. I believe that this kind of sim- symbolic teaching is the kind of education that doesn't just tell us what to think. It actually changes the way we think. It changes the way that we perceive the world around us. And actually, I think that if I can make a bridge into this, I think that's why these changes have occurred. Each of these different branches of Mormonism are looking to change their ordinances. but it's, And that's what we end up focusing on. But the change in the ordinance, I believe, is actually the last thing to change. The first thing that changes in any group or church is their culture. Um, as their culture changes, they have different desires, different things they want 
out of their religious religious experience and different things that they think should be important. Well, then that changes what doctrines they emphasize so that they have their different interpretation of doctrines and then they have their practices based on that. It's only when that rises to the level that there's some kind of massive cognitive dissonance being experienced by a large number of their members because the symbols of the ordinances no longer match the doctrines that they're being taught and their lived experience. That cognitive dissonance then causes people to agitate and say, why are we doing this? This does not fit anymore with what I was taught. And then they change it. So I don't want to treat everyone like a monolith, like there's the LDS church and then there's fundamentalists. But uh, I I have found fundamentalists that the word fundamentalism sort of makes people think of this brittleness, this like literal thinking. But I found fundamentalists to be a lot more flexible in some of their thinking than the LDS. And in one of those ways, uh, it's this idea of symbolism. But don't you think it's fair to say that a lot of fundamentalist traditions, including the LDS, still look at the temple literally as like a literal history? There's not a lot of focus on symbolism. I'm not talking about your group specifically. I just mean a lot of different interpretations of the temple. Actually, in talking with a few people that are still in the LDS church, my family um, and some friends, I, I would kind of agree with you. They really look at it more as it's a history lesson and we need to learn from our history as in, you know, oh, Adam did this and, you know, the apostles did that. And this is how we pray. And, you know, when we die, we have to wear these clothes in our coffin and kind of things like that. These are some of the conversations I've had. And I think, gosh, you guys are missing a lot of information when we look at it more as a history lesson. Because, yes, we need to learn from it, but it also can teach us about our future. And I think that's what, you know, a lot of people miss when they attend the temple. In any, I, I, I'm just making a broad statement. I mean, they probably do in our church as well as any other church. I, I think that it just depends on our mindset and how prepared we are. One thing that I really like that Christina Rossetti brought out um, I think in part one of of the last episode that you guys talked with her is that, you know, the Catholic Church goes and teaches some symbolism and they teach a lot about their religion. And then we have the choice. And here in, in Mormonism, you know, it seems like we teach, go to the temple. You know, I love to see the temple. I'm going there someday. And we don't know why we're going there. And it's all lost to us. But I think that the Catholic Church has won up on us with that because they teach their members those things and don't pretend that that's something that we can't talk about. Because those are things that affect our everyday lives. They affect our culture. They affect how we interact with our children and and with our society around us, the people next door to us and the people at our work. It affects every part of society. And Really, the temple teaches us to be better people, to look out for others, to have compassion for others, and to give service to others. It's it's not just some history lesson about what happened in the book of Genesis or the book of Moses. I guess I'd like to add that as I look at the way that all of these different churches have looked at it, I, I don't know that I – no, there's certainly not a monolith. But I don't think that the difference is necessarily a difference between each tradition as much as that there are different stages of faith and the development of faith. When people are young, when they're children, right, everything has to be literal. When you say God's in heaven, they assume that that means up there in the clouds or um, things like that. And 
when you look at these ordinances, baptism, does it wash away your sins is something that a lot of us were taught in, um, you know, in primary. It's only then as we grow older that we learn deeper levels of symbolism about it or different ways of looking at it. And so when you said when you, so, Lindsay, when you mentioned that, like, well, some people will look at the temple endowment and they'll take it very, very literally. I just think that people in all traditions do that. People in our church do, too, I'm sure. It's just a matter of maturity. As we mature in our faith, you go through series of faith crisis and resolution, I think, where you learn to recognize that, no, you can't take everything literally. Maybe there is a reason for faith that goes beyond, you know, the the basic facts maybe there's a deeper meaning and and so i i think that that's that's essentially why i think that there's so much difference and i think that in general different churches different traditions tend to settle into a certain level of spiritual maturity so we're running into the first hour the first part is there anything you want to say about the history or fundamentals in general because in the next part we're going to talk about your group and your interpretation of the temple Actually, I do have something I wanted to just add to close with is I think that one thing as I've studied fundamentalism before I joined the branch, um, you know, I noticed that temples were not very prominent in the beginning of fundamentalism, so to speak, you know, back with Lauren C. Woolley and and even, jo- you know, Musser, Joseph Musser would say, you know, hey, we're going to still do our genealogy and we're going to hold those names so that when we can go back into the temple, we'll be able to go do that. And I think it's it's progressed historically from we're looking at the LDS church to be able to go back and do our work there to a place where, you know, we in the faith of Mormonism can still go and proceed and do these types of things and we can have a temple and that we're not just looking back historically to the what we term the mother church um, for all of the advice that we can rely on modern day revelation and that we can go and help our family members and take them to the temple where historically with fundamentalism, you know, they really looked back at the LDS church and said, that's something that they do. They do the temple stuff and we can't go there anymore. But now we have empowered our members and we can go and do those things as well. In support of what Anne said, I want to mention that, yes, I think that in Mormon fundamentalism in general, there is a very strong thread to go back to the mindset or continue the mindset that they had a century ago that assumed that any changes that might take place in the mainstream LDS church, any any trouble, any conflict between Mormon fundamentalists and them would probably be resolved. Most of them thought that that would be resolved within a decade or two. At the very least, the next generation would be fine because there's this idea, and many Mormon fundamentalists still hold to it, that they don't have the authority um, to perform any of these ordinances. They don't believe that they received the necessary priesthood or the necessary keys. And so they're kind of waiting. Um, a lot of these Mormon fundamentalist groups, I'd say the vast majority of Mormon fundamentalists, are actually not engaged in any temple practices. So when we talk about that, um, we're actually talking to the exception and not the rule. The general rule of Mormon fundamentalists is that they talk about how um, they believe that God will make it good someday, that someday they'll have access to the temple again, or that someday the LDS church will welcome them back and allow them to receive the fullness of the original ordinances. But in the meantime, they actually kind of put that on the shelf, so to speak, and assume that that is not an active part of their faith right now. The only thing that I would say, and it's more of a question than, than pushback, even though it might sound like pushback, most fundamentalist groups do some sort of endowment. 
even if it's not in a temple, that they might have an endowment house or they might do it in a church building or in a home. So what's the difference? Well, I know that that is true of the AUB. They do have an endowment house in Utah and that and a temple in Mexico. And then I understand that a lot of the Libaranite traditions um, at least will hold on to the law of adoption and some of them will do an endowment in their home. Um, but I understand that most of the traditions that came from uh, the Woolies and Joseph Musser for example, the FLDS, their temple practices, as you pointed out, are very different. The Centennial Park group, which was related to them, uh, do not um, have any kind of endowment house or temple practices. I, I think one of the other big differences, too, is that most of the one, of, of the few that do have endowments, like in their living room and that kind of thing, well, first of all, it's a, obviously a difference in, in that they don't actually build temples. But second of all, the other difference is, is that it really is primarily, if not exclusively, for the living. So this whole idea of sealing our generations um, that exists in the Brighamite tradition, um, that's supposed to go back into um, all of those, the fullness of all those different kinds of temple practices and the redeeming the dead aspect. Uh, a lot of Mormon fundamentalists say that they're still waiting for a full temple to do that part, that they're just trying to make sure that they don't lose what priesthood they have by holding in their own homes some of those ordinances because they received them themselves. Thank you. That was beautifully said. And I think that that will answer some questions for people. So I'm going to end this episode as part one of this. And I just want to thank you guys coming on. And then we'll bring you back for part two, where I wanted to sort of dig into how your group views and uses the temple. Thank you. Thank you, Lindsay. The song you just heard is called My Disguise by Mikkel Douse. Her album is available for purchase on iTunes or Apple Music. Thanks for listening.